when it says um, beautiful and broken, holiness and love, we've been talking now as we're looking at, at God and looking at knowing God, and uh, as we've gone through the different attributes of God, um, we've moved into the, the moral attributes, and I'll come back to that in a moment as we, as we move forward here. But just thinking how we've talked about the fact that, um, that holiness and love, how they, they come together in the concept of salvation. And, um, you know, blood flows down, blood flows down, flowing from the hands of the healer. But it flows down in holiness and, and love. They go together. And so it's an exciting thing. But as we have begin this year looking at knowing God, the quest, we have considered then the fact that that is the core of eternal life. The core of salvation is knowing God knowing him intimately, knowing him relationally. That is what God has desired for us. And so in that, we have considered then the existence and exclusiveness of God. And I was thinking about that even more this week. Um, I'm sure you've seen the, the, um, the bumper stickers that I believed. I don't know this for a fact. I just assumed. You know what happens when you assume, right? Um, when you see the, the ones about peace and everything, and it has the the Star of David, it has the cross, it has the, the Islam thing on it, it has the um, yin and the yang, and the, what? Tolerance, some of them say, tol- some say tolerance, some say unity, some say peace, there, there's different ones, but they, they all have that, all those religious stickers on it, you know, let's be one. And, and, I, and I rode behind a vehicle this week that had 88.3 stickers on it, you know, which are the WAFJ, uh, stickers on it. it had had a Christian sticker on it and stuff like that, and it has this sticker on it. And yeah, one hundred percent, it doesn't go together. But you know, the sad thing is that as Christians, we are becoming so much watered down with what we understand and what we believe that there could be somebody out there, and I don't know who these people Maybe there's an atheist and a, and a Christian married, and they have to kind of blend what they believe on this car. I don't know. But, but to me, it's a sad indicator of where we are in Christendom in the United States, that we don't get it. That are, and, and honestly, I know more than just that one car. I know people who would say this, or have said it in the past, and you probably know some of them thinking about it. Anyways, um, that would, we, we serve one God anyway. We all serve the same God. And it's like, no, we don't. We don't serve the same God. There is only one true God. And Jesus Christ has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, who is the one true God, except through me. There is only one God. There is a God. And there is only one God. And Yahweh said, besides me, there is no other God. I know not one. There wasn't one before me. Neither shall there ever be one after me. I'm it. So if you're looking for another one, hang it up. There's only one who's been eternal, and that's Yahweh. He's the one. So the existence and exclusiveness of God then we looked at the composition of God. That God is one. He is singular. And yet God has expressed himself in three. And I shared this again a little bit last week. Just that, that struggle for Bob, you know. And, you know, I, I like to, 
I, I tend to, to minimize the threeness of him sometimes and say the three expressions, the three manifestations of God, and, and yet there are three persons within the Godhead. There is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus is the Father, and yet they're separate, and it's a mind-boggling concept for me. And so we have the triunity or the trinity, the threeness of God, the three in one. And then we began looking at the attributes of God. We looked at his natural attributes, the fact that he is sovereign and the fact that he is limitless. Then we began to look at the vocational attributes of God, the fact that he is the creator, he is the savior, he is the judge. And then we began looking at the moral attributes of God, which we took um, about a month and a half ago. Um, we looked at the, took two weeks to look at the holiness of God, the fact that God is set apart. He is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart, he is set apart, he is set apart. And that he has called us to be holy as he is holy. That we are to be set apart in all that we do as well. And then last week we began looking at the second um, segment in these moral attributes. And that is we began looking at the love of God. And it is interesting over again how many times God's love and God's holiness are wrapped together, and that wrapping together of his holiness and his love comes to you and I as well. Last week we looked at the love of God, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the expression of his love and the definition of his love. But today we're moving more into the, our reflection of that love and, and, and the application of his love into our lives. And, and so in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, blameless, before him in love. That we should be holy before him in love. That, and without blame is a, a kind of a, a continual descriptor of what holiness is. But note then how the holiness and the love are together. That when we stand before God on that final day, there are two major attributes that he's going to be looking for in us. Holiness and love. God is holy, holy, holy. God is love. And he desires us to be holy before him in love. As well, in the book of Ephesians, back in chapter 3, Paul leaves this prayer for, for the for the believers there in, in Ephesus. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What family is that? The family of God. The church. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now get this, though. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Whose love? God's love. His love. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The quest that I'm desiring and striving to encourage you to be on is that quest to know God and to know Him in His fullness. 
And you'll never know that until you get a fullness, a full grip, if you're, when you're able to be able to truly comprehend the fullness of his love for you. I remember growing up in my relationship with my dad, and I love my dad, so understand when I share this, this is not toward my dad. This is about Bob and the way Bob is wired. I respected my dad greatly. My dad was the disciplinarian for our home. He was the judge. Holiness would, would be my dad. Does that make sense? But the concept of love, really understanding love, was foreign to Bob. I respected my dad. I, I didn't really comprehend love. Does that make sense? And I remember after I got saved, and I was on a youth group, youth um, camping thing with three, with three boys and uh, three adults guys went with together, so there were six of us, and we were in this tent, and the guy in the next site was playing his rock music, and I, you know my background, so I, I was spinning with the music, you know, and getting frustrated and agitated and aggravated and all the other irritated words you can throw in there. And so my pastor, Pastor Woody, who led me to the Lord, was there. He got up and go, asked, went and asked the guy, he said, can you, can you turn that down, you know? Now, why? I didn't just get up and go do that, you know, just I hate confrontation. I'd rather get mad and irritated and all that other kind of stuff, right? And uh, so he went and asked him to turn it down, and, and so he did. F- figure that one out, huh? He were, someone was kind and went over and just explained it. It's like, do you mind putting it, turning it down? And, and the guy did it. Anyways, there was a lesson to learn there, isn't it? Anyways, and so everybody else falls asleep, but I'm still what? I'm still wide awake now because being agitated and irritated and all that other kind of stuff, what happens to your body? Yeah, that's right. Testosterone starts going. Your, your adrenaline starts pumping. And so now I'm wide awake while my body's trying to settle back down. And while I was there and I was praying and, and such and, and struggling still with this judgment of God, this, that, I mean, that's who God was. A lot of times how you see your dad is how you will see God. God opened himself up to me, and you don't need to write this in the back of your Bible, but the, I had a daydream since I was awake. I mean, it was a dream, but it was, I was there. I was, and God was sitting on his throne high and lifted up, and as I watched, do you guys ever see these transformers, you know, the little toys that you can kind of turn from one thing to another thing? His, his throne transformed into an easy chair. And he reached out his hand and said, but I'm your daddy, come, let's read a book. Let's read a good book together. And now that may mean nothing to you, but for me, that, that, was, that was so huge. It was, a, it was a turning point for me because I had been meditating on John 17, verse 3, what it means to really intimately know God. And so for Bob, it's hard for me to intimately know Marcia is such a mystery to me. And, and it's hard for me to, to really comprehend that. And if it's hard for me to comprehend a woman that I've lived with, that I've slept beside for how many years? 50, 60? Oh, 25, 26. It just, anyway. um, anyways. Anyway, yes. But, but to know somebody, I mean, honestly, I know her better than any of you do. The scary thing is she knows me better than any of you do. That's why she's not allowed to talk to anybody. No, anyways. <laughs> 
I guard that. Anyways, no. Um, but if I struggle with knowing, intimately, relationally, knowing and loving and desiring the one who I live with and that I'm with all the time, how much harder is it for God, who is eternal? Do you get it? And God says, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you more than you can ever comprehend. The breadth, the length, the width, the height of my love is unmeasurable. Just as I take your sin and I cast it as far as the east is from the west, if you would, so is the measure of my love for you. And when you finally get a grip on how much God really loves you, do you know what? You'll want to be holy. You'll want to be pure. You'll want to do those things that he wants you to do. Not because he is the disciplinarian, not because he's the judge, not because he's the enforcer of the rules at home, if you would, in the house of God, but because you comprehend what all he's done for you. And now that I am an adult, I am ever increasing in my love for my dad, in my appreciation for who my dad is, and what my dad did for me. I know about the time when I was caught with possession of drugs, and that I should have been expelled, not just suspended, but expelled for, for dealing drugs. I know that my file shouldn't have been in that file, but it should have been over in that one. I know, I sat there while the vice principal said to me, I have two folders. I have this temporary one. And if you sneeze wrong again, it goes from here to here. And I know about hearing from my mom why it was in that one and not in that one. It's because my dad, the disciplinarian, took the full blame for his son's sin. And humbled himself to give me another chance. Do you get it? And if my earthly father loves me that much, how much more my heavenly father? And so we talked about the consideration of God's love and the definition of his love. And we talked about that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is ahav. And it, and it refers to this desire to having an affection upon one that you choose to place that affection upon. That it's a choice. That ahav was a choice, that you made a decision to do this. And then we brought it into the Greek, into the New Testament, and we talked about the different forms of love, and we, we showed that the parallel love was agape, or agape, which was a selfless love. It was a self-giving love. It was, I don't, it's not what you can do for me, it's what I can do for you. I have chosen to place my affection upon you. And now I'm willing to sacrifice because of that decision. Jesus says, or God says, I will never leave you nor 
forsake you. That's exactly right. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because I have chosen to set my love upon you. We talked about the expression of God's love. Well, right off the bat, it's his provision. What is the, the ultimate provision of God? His salvation. I mean, what more could he do to reveal his love for you than to lay down his life for you? For God, the eternal one, to become incarnate in the finite flesh of a man. That he who knew no sin would become sin so that you could have on yourself the righteousness of God. To such a extent that before he ever was crucified, he cried out in a garden, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, if you would, let it be done. He didn't say that. But that's reading through the lines. That's there. He said, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then the protection that he affords us as well, where he says that in that love, in that love, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing will ever be able to remove us from his hand. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor angels, nor principalities. Earthquakes, famines, pestilence, sword, you name it. I don't care how bad it gets. You're still in the palm of your father's hand. And he still loves you. And as a dad, I understand. There are times when I'm going to allow... I don't want my kids to go through pain and torment. But there are times when I, I, I allow them to go through it because it is what is best for them. They have to learn. I may want to, to, to keep them from it, but there are times that they have to what? They've got to learn. And they're going to learn the same way I learned most of the time. And that is by what? The seed of, yeah, yeah, by experience, you're right, but it's the seed of learning. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, anyways, and so, but God, and through all that, will still protect you. You will always be his. But in that, God desires then for us to to imitate him, to, 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 to bring it and to apply it to our lives. And in that application of God's love to my life, the very first thing is that looking at God's love and understanding what He's done for me, it should provoke me to worship Him, to to, to glorify Him, to be so overwhelming and full of thanksgiving and glory to God. I just I don't understand believers who who aren't. That's what I'm saying. They just they haven't got a grip on how much their Father really loves them and what He has really done for them. And so it's displayed in our in our devotion. 1 John 4, 15-19 reads, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. In other words, because God loves me. I don't need to be afraid. I'm not worried about whether he's casting me out. Do you get it? 
I mean, he may spank my butt. I may be losing some rewards. But I don't have to worry that he's disowning me. He'll never disown me. Not because of Bob, but because of his greatness, because of his love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Get it? We love him because he first loved us. And when you are made perfect in love, when you begin to understand the height, the depth, the breadth, the lengths of God's love, you will cannot do anything but love him responsively, to love him in return. And so I ask you, I challenge you, as we just, this is all review in a sense from last week. How much do you love God? Is it overflowing from your life? Maybe it's that you don't know him as you ought to know him. I'm not even talking about salvation. For some of it, it may be salvation. For some, you may not know him, period, and you need to come to grips and, and, and come to know him. But for others of you, it may be that <clears throat> you haven't taken the time to really look to him and understand how much he really loves you. And I don't mean this to be this watered-down, wishy-washy, feel-good kind of message. I mean, it's okay with me if you feel good on this at this point, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll step on your toes and beat you up later. But anyways, but for at least, I mean, you ought to feel good. I mean, it's okay for us to have this warm feeling about God, you know? As long as you just don't make the fuzzy feeling, you know, we're just going to come and go. But it's, it is there. God loves you. I hope I'm not beating the horse too much in this one, but it's so important for me to, for you to, to, to understand it. Secondly, though, it's going to be displayed in our obedience. Not just our overwhelming devotion back to him, but in our obedience. Turn with me to John 14. These are passages that we really didn't get to look at last week that I said that we would come back and we would begin here um, as we came through. John 14, looking at what, what God, Jesus, states regarding our love and the expression of our love to him in worship. John 14, look at verse 15. Jesus states, If you love me, keep my commandments. Drop down to verse 21. He who has, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, manifest myself to him. Drop to verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, that is Judas, not Iscariot, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now drop down to chapter 15. Chapter 15, look at verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Okay? Let's go to 1 John, John's first epistle. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 4 and 5. If you don't have your scriptures, it's up there on the board for you. 
He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is what? Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. God loves you with an overwhelming love. And those who comprehend that will love him in return. And the expression of that love toward God will be, first of all, worship. Second of all, obedience. And that obedience really is a part of devotion, isn't it? I obey him not because I have to, but because I want to. And I shared the, the little story last week about Anna and I talking, remember? About how Anna and I were talking up front, and, 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 and I asked her, if, if, if she was asking what a sinner was, she was talking about sinner, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I asked her what a sinner was, and she I don't know. And so, you know, and so I, I, I shared with her what the, what the sinner was and that it was one who disobeyed God and asked her if she ever disobeyed God, and she said, yes. You know, it was like one of these, you know. And I said, but do you want to obey God? And she said, yes. And she, and she looked at me and, and said, you know, because I said I was a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. I'm a sinner too. And she said, do you disobey God? It's really bad now, I mean, because it's okay to say we're sinners. That's just a kind of title, right? You know, it's sinners. You know, we're sinners saved by grace. It's a wonderful thing. We're, we have all one thing in common. We're all sinners, you know, and we just go on and sin. It doesn't matter. Because that's just a theological term. Anyway, just throw it out. It doesn't really matter. But when you really boil down, you say, you disobey God. You're rebellious in your soul toward God. Now we're really, that's getting a little personal now, isn't it? I mean, it's not just a title anymore. Now it's saying this volitional. I mean, before it was just positional. I'm a sinner. I'm just in this group of people who are called sinners. But when you say, do you disobey God, now we're talking about me as an individual and that I volitionally do something. Of course I don't volitionally do it. The devil makes me do it, right? I mean, it's not me who does it. I mean, Paul said it, right? You know, it's the flesh that's in me, you know? You know, it's the... Oh, what an awful thing it is, this war that's going on within me. Well, the fact is, it's me who chooses to do it. But you know how you'll really know if you love God? It's not always when you're obeying Him. But how do you feel after you disobey Him? If you feel rotten, now, you may feel rotten because you don't like what happened, but if you feel rotten because you displeased your dad, now you know you love him. Do you get it? And all I can tell you is that I remember that time, going back to my illustration. I can't tell you honestly, from my heart, that I was devastated, that I devastated my dad. Not get it? That's why I said this is more, not a testimony about my dad, it's a testimony about Bob. Because what did it reveal about Bob? I didn't love my dad. There was nothing about my dad's love for me. He sacrificed for me. But Bob, at that time, was a teenage boy thinking only of himself not comprehending the vastness and the greatness of his love of his father for him, being full of himself, 
was more worried about the consequences to himself than it was to his dad and his family. Do you get it? And so when you sin, are you more worried about the consequences that will occur to you? Or are you more worried about, or are you more broken up about what you've done to dad? To your Abba? To the one who loves you and died for you? When you are concerned about that, you'll know that you're on the right trail. Because now you're loving God. Does that make sense? I had somebody come in to my office years ago at the previous church and this whole time and said, Pastor, I'm struggling with sin. I said, praise God. And they just looked at me like, huh? <laughs> I said, I'm glad you're struggling. There's too many Christians who ain't struggling at all. They're just wallowing in it. They don't get, they didn't bother them at all. They're just sinning and it doesn't even bother them. I'm glad you're struggling. I'm glad it bothers you. Because now you get hope. They're, they're, we, we can work on it now. Do you get it? If you're sinning and it doesn't bother you, you got a big problem. God says, through his apostles and prophets, if you say you know him, and you're living in a life of sin, and it doesn't bother you, then you're a liar. And you don't know him. You don't know him. You can play a game. You can play a game for... I can play a game. I can pastor. And I can play a game for 40, 50, 60 years playing a game as a pastor. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He says, because someone may come in with another gospel, another Jesus, or another spirit, and you may very well accept them. And he goes on, he's talking about these false prophets, false apostles. And he says, he says that they are workers of the devil. For Satan himself portrays himself to be an angel of light. Therefore, it's no wonder if his workers also portray themselves to be angels of light, ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I believe I'm saved. I know I'm saved. But you don't maybe know that. But even if I was, I could play the game. There are people portraying, pretending that they're pastors and they're ministers of righteousness and they're serving nobody but themselves. And there are people who go to church every Sunday who are serving nobody but themselves. It's because they love themselves that they go. It's not because they love God. Who do you love? Who are you serving? Now, secondly, what we want to spend more time on today is the consideration of God's love should provoke me with the desire to reflect him. Also in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Isn't it amazing how much the book of Ephesians has to do with this concept? You don't really think about this, huh? You know, but it's all overwhelming. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says to the, to the believers there, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And being an imitator of God was the very chief thing it's gonna, you're going to see. That you're going to walk in love. You're going to walk in love. I mean, that's how God has, has, I mean, His holiness, His set-apartness is chiefly demonstrated to us in His love. His love is set-apart love. It's holy love. It's committed love. That you're going to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Christ's love was a self-sacrificing love. It was agape, agape, love, agapao, love. 
And so we read in Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any, bowels, um, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife. I'm sorry, um, that's um, King James. Through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Let not every man look on his own things, but every man also look on the things of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even to death of the cross. Let this mind... What kind of mind? A mind of love. He says, I want you to have the same love. I want you to be of one accord, having love, this love for one another. And how is this love, how is this unity going to be betrayed? That you're going to be other-focused. Other-focused in the way that Christ was other-focused, and that is that the value of others is going to be worth more than your own value, and that the needs of others is going to be more important than your own need, to the point that you'd be willing to sacrifice even yourself. But who is the others? Who are others? You know, who are, let each esteem others, the interests of others. Who are the others? Well, let's talk about the scope of that love. Who are those others? Well, first of all, we're told that in the greatest commandment, Jesus was asked his teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's Matthew 28's version. But we also know from the Luke's version of it, chapter 10, turn there with me, that, that Luke gave a portrayal of who this other neighbor is in Luke 10. And we refer to that parable as the Good Samaritan. This is all old hat, I know it is. Um, but it is good for us to be continually provoked and reminded. Verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, Who's my neighbor? Jesus answered and said, and now I understand that this parable was very disconcerting to the Jews. It was so um, rude, if you would, from their perspective. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So, it, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an end, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, and gave it to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? 
And he, that is the lawyer, the one who knew the law, said, he who showed mercy on him. Notice he doesn't say, oh, the Samaritan. He doesn't want to say that. The one who showed mercy. You know, and I, almost, I can almost put that, that tone in there while this guy's talking to him, you know. Like, I don't want to answer this question, but I have to answer this question. It's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, then you go do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, I, I want to real quick interject. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you haven't. This is really important to understand the Good Samaritan from the, the full Judaic context here. We like to pick on the priest. We like to pick on the, pre- the Levite. Okay? But you need to understand the fullness of what's happening here. The priest was one who was set apart to God. Holy unto the Lord. Set apart unto the Lord. The Levite was one who was set apart unto the Lord. He was holy unto the Lord. They're both going to Jerusalem. Because, and since they're going to Jerusalem, they're going there for a reason. They're going to work at the temple, to serve at the temple, to serve God. To do that, they need to be holy. As a part of being consecrated, set apart, and holy to God, they were not allowed to touch a dead body. If they touched a dead body, they would be unclean, and they could not serve God. So they were instructed not to touch a dead body. What did they see? Potentially a dead body. Yeah, They don't know he's dead, but find, when they find out he's dead, it's too late. So what they see is somebody potentially dead. So we like to make them out as these ogres. I don't, I don't think Jesus doesn't make him out to be an ogre here. I think there's a two-edged sword happening of teaching here. And that is, the law limited these guys what they could do, but understanding and fulfilling the love of God because of the holiness side. Get it? But God's holiness and his love come together. And that's what the law, the people who are under the law, didn't get. But what you and I, having the law written in our hearts and mind, but being under grace, should fully comprehend. And so they saw one, and they had to step aside. But the Samaritan comes, and the Samaritan is not under the law. So what did he see? Someone hurt, someone who needed help. And he was willing to sacrifice his schedule. He was heading someplace. He was a businessman. But he stopped at the inn so he could take care of this guy. He was willing to sacrifice his schedule. He was willing to sacrifice his funds, his finances. And he must have been a well-known businessman in order for the innkeeper to say what? Sure, I'll do it, because you're what? Trustworthy to come back and pay the tab. I don't know if you ever thought about that either, but anyways, it's an interesting thing, right? So this businessman was willing to humble himself, get blood, somebody's blood all over him, a Jew who despised him when the, when the, the two Jewish men passed him by, but he sees a Jewish man, and if anybody should be able to walk past him spitting, it should have been the Samaritan. But he humbles himself, gets the Jewish blood all over him, takes him and takes care of him. And so Jesus says, who's the neighbor? That's your neighbor. That's you. What a struggle. And back in the book of Leviticus, I want you to turn here, because this is all important. This foundation stuff is important. I don't care if we have to split this and come back to it in two weeks and, and go through all this again. I just This is so important. Leviticus, chapter 19 is the context of where this second great commandment comes from. It doesn't come from the Shema, where the greatest commandment comes from, but rather it comes from here in the book of Leviticus. And it comes from verse 18, but to get the context and the fullness of what this means, I want to begin reading it um, in verse 9. Okay? 
Moses, speaking the word of God, says to the children of God, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. Why? I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your Lord, uh, the name of your God. Why? I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. I tell you, I, I anguish when I don't pay Ben. You know, all of a sudden I realize a week later, oops, I haven't paid Ben. You know, I'm, I'm holding back his money. I don't know what he's got bills he's got to pay, but he's sitting there waiting for Bob to pay him. You know, and that's just totally wrong. Anyways, it's right here from the Old Testament. Verse 14, you shall not curse to death nor put a stumbling block before the blind. You thought it was just a joke. You know, they're the butt of your humor. God says you don't do that. Why? But you shall fear the Lord your God because I am the Lord. You shall, not, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among the people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall, sh- not, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. And so you know what he just got done telling you throughout all those nine or ten verses? How you love your neighbor. You love them as yourself. I mean, if you were blind, would you want somebody to, to put something in your path so that you stumbled and fell? No. I mean, so as you come through here, don't put yourself in the, in, the, in the spot of the one saying that I can't do this to somebody else. Put yourself in the spot of the one who it's being done to. That's what he's saying. Don't do that. If you don't, it's like, tell Andrew, right, Andrew? How many times? I, do you want them to do it to you? Right? And you say, no. So I say what? Don't do it to them. I mean, this is pretty simple, right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this one out. If you don't want to be treated that way, then what God says is, don't treat them that way. But on a more positive note, how do you want them to treat you? That's how you should treat them. Drop down to verse 33. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so the same thing comes true. You shall love him as yourself. You shall love your neighbor, even the stranger. Does anybody know, some of you should, you should retain this, the word hospitality in in, in the Greek. Now, you may not be able to tell me the exact Greek word, but can you tell me what the Greek word really means, literally? Lover of strangers. Very good. Good. Good memory. Lover of strangers. We think hospitality is having my friends over. It's not. It's having strangers over people you don't know, foreigners, aliens. My parents thought that was having Marsha over because she was from Apollo. She was an alien. She was way out there. And so they thought they were practicing hospitality. Anyways, um, but that's a fact. 
It may cause us to come out of our comfort zone, but that's where it's at. So you're to love your, your neighbors, okay? One that's a little bit easier. You're to love your brethren. Now, that's an easy one, isn't it? Isn't that, that's kind of nice. Turn to John 13, John chapter 13. Look down at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now this makes it even worse. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. This isn't a matter of love them like you want to be loved. This is love them like I loved you. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you don't have love for your brethren, for the church, do you know what's an indicator of? That you don't have love for God and that you're not His disciple. When you express love, for one another here. You reveal Christ in you. You reveal that you are truly His disciple. Turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 1. You guys that were at the men's breakfast yesterday, um, you'll remember part of this. We read this yesterday. Or read down to it. And this is all context of it. 1 Peter chapter 1. Right on the heels of Peter talking to the, to the believers about holiness and being holy as he is holy and being bought not with silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ, he says to them in verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. That your love for the brethren is going to be sincere, unhypocritical, non-two-faced. In other words, you are looking like you're loving them on the outside, but inside, you're, you're what? grinding your teeth and saying, I can't believe this idiot. I know, we wouldn't say idiot because you're not allowed to say idiot because saying idiot makes you a murderer and so you'd probably say something else. Anyways, but or you maybe just refrain from not saying anything, but your, your heart is still hardened like that. Peter says, I believe as an apostle and prophet, speaking through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that I'm supposed to love you unhypocritically, sincerely. And not just that, but fervently. Fervently. With as much desire and with much as excitement that I have for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, I, I, that's a joke. It, it's, a, it's a joke. But guys, you guys understand it. Women, with as much desire you have for clothing and shoes and in person. Ah! 
and, 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 and all those other things, you know, and hairdos and everything else, you know. I, I wore the same outfit Friday night and Saturday for the graduation, rehearsal for the graduation. And Marcia just looked at me and was like, I can't believe you're wearing the same thing. She's, I said, baby doll, I'm not a girl. I'm not a woman. She says, she says, people notice. I said, I don't think people really notice as much as the person who's wearing it notices. You know? And so women are more worried about it because they're more focused on it. And that's okay. That's why God made you. It's all right. But I'm a guy. I mean, I could go in, in tapestry. It doesn't bother me. I mean, just put something on and go. But in our culture, this is what I'm supposed to wear, suit, tie. You know, I'm supposed to look. And so as long as it's not thinking really bad, I can wear it the next day. It doesn't bother me, you know? And, uh, no, this is not. I, I, I sweat a lot yesterday. I, I came home, and I was, I was really sweaty. And I said, man, I said, I, I sweat too much. I can't hang. I just can't wear this thing tomorrow. I mean, I just stuck it on the, on, the, on the hanger. I figured none of you were there anyway. You didn't even know. I mean, I could wear it five days in a row as long as I'm with a different group. Nobody knows, right? But, but I'm a guy, you know? I'm a guy. And so, but the fervency that we have to these other things that we get really excited about, some of it, for you, it may be politics. It may be food. Yeah, no, not Phyllis. But praise God it's not Phyllis. Anyways, but whatever that thing is that you really... You're fervent about it. You're excited about it. I mean, you can really get to talking about That's how much you should be loving one another. That's your, that's your speed. That's, that's, that's your equation thing. That's, that's your word picture. Whatever it is for you, that's how much you should be excited about loving one another. Finally, let's, let's go to 1 John chapter 4. And we'll have to look at the rest of these groups two weeks from now. 1 John 4, beginning at verse 7. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knoweth God. He who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. If you know God, Again, you will what? Love. And primarily, who will you love? <clears throat> the brethren. Listen, if you can't love other people who love God, who are you going to love? I mean, if you can't be committed to one another, if, if there can't be the camaraderie and the, the, the koinonia, the fellowship, the unity <clears throat> within a group of people who are all saved by God's grace and in worshiping and loving Him, who will you? We got two more groups to go through. This is the easy part. Loving the brethren. You don't want to come two weeks from now if this is hard. This is the place that should be fun. Because if any other place, this is really selfish here, isn't it? Think about it. If there's no, any other place on the earth than, than a church, when I love you and I serve you, there is that knowledge within me that you being in, in the likeness of God as well and being a lover of God, you're going to want to what? Love me too. Do you get it? 
And so there can be a little bit of selfishness. No, there shouldn't be any selfishness. I'm not saying that, okay? But there, there can almost even be a little bit of selfishness in the thing here. Because I'm not worrying about that. I'm just continually pouring it out, 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 and it's never going to come back. Do you get it? But if the church is really acting like a church and we're loving one another, then guess what's happening? I don't care if you've got 30 people here. Let's just say 30 people here, right? And I'm pouring out love. I'm just love pouring out love to, to 29 of you. That means that 29 of you are doing what? Pouring out love to me. And I'm just, I'm just feeling overwhelmed with your love. And even if there's a few of you, a handful of you, are being selfish right now and you're not loving me, I still got a couple dozen people loving me. Do you get it? So even if I'm the guy who's being selfish right now, you're loving me. In spite of me. Or you ought to be. And that's why Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. When somebody comes in here, we could pick on you, right, Becky? Because you're the, the, and I won't ask you that, but you're the, you're the, the newest, if you would, of people coming in, right? Be interesting to, to hear her off, off tape. We've got to stop it first, just in case it's a bad testimony. Anyways, but you're still here, so maybe it's semi-decent. But what about the people who have come and visited and have gone otherward? Why didn't they say? Now, I know for a lot of them, because I try to stay in contact and find out what, what, what it is. But do we as a body emulate the love of God in our relationship with one another. When someone walks in, are they going to stay because of the teaching? Or are they going to stay because they see it in practice? Years ago, my best friend, still my best friend, and your best friends can take out the swords and they can, they can you know, and bring you down the side sometimes, right? And I remember as the church was growing, the previous church I was at, we went from 70 to 180. And as it was, was growing, um, Mike McGowan, for those of you who know him, Mike said to me, he says, Bob, I ain't growing because of you. It's growing in spite of you. <laughs> oh, He's still my best buddy. Anyways, um, but I praise God for that. Do you know why? Because people weren't coming for Bob. They were coming for God. And they were coming to a place where they saw the word of God being implemented. And when we took our eyes off of God and put it on ourselves, and when we started not implementing anymore, God said, fine, it can go away. This is, this is so important to me. For us to be able to love one another and express that to one another. You ought to care about each other's needs. You ought to care about each other's prayer requests and burdens. And I, for one, admittedly, and I've, I've admitted this so many times, am so self-focused. I, I mean, I struggle with that. I, I, it's, I'm so tunnel visions into my own schedule, into my own things going on. That's sin, folks. That's sin. That's all about me. I mean, even to the point that I can be exclusive to my wife and not thinking about what she's got going on because I've only got me in mind. I mean, it may be that I'm working on a message for you, but really I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about me 
getting this message accomplished so I can present it to you and serve God. Do you get it? I'm not trying to make fun of that. That's a fact. And sometimes we forget that God doesn't want us to be the priest and the Levite walking on the other side because we're worrying about fulfilling a law. But he wants us to be the guy being involved in relationships because that's what he has for us with him. He loves us. And he wants the relationship with us. And that's what he wants for you to have with one another. A relationship. A loving relationship. And so, I'll ask you the same questions that are at the end of the presentation, which we're not getting to. But they're on your sermon note sheets. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Where do you abide? Where do you abide? What would be your residence and your address? How visible is the love of God in and through you? How good is your reflection? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have given to me what I don't deserve and not given to me what I do deserve. And I know, Lord, that those are an expression of the combination of your holiness and your love. And that you have loved me with an everlasting love in spite of me. And that while I was yet a sinner, while I was yet at enmity with you, you set your affection upon me and these others as well in all of those that are in the world right now. Such that you desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And that you have provided the propitiation for the sins not only of your children but of the whole world. Lord, help me to love as you love. Help me to be an imitator of God and to walk in love. Lord, help me to love my neighbor. Help me to love the brethren. Help me to consider them as being more valuable than myself and their needs as being more important than my needs. But Lord, help me not to do it as a hypocrite. Help me not to do it pharisaically as just punching another ticket and fulfilling another law, and only doing it because I have to. But Lord, as an expression of my love for you, as a result of your love for me, that you may receive the glory, that all men may see those works that you do through me, through us, and give you the praise and the glory that you rightly deserve. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.